Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Advanced care planning is a term used to describe when a person prepares for future management of serious or terminal illness, including developing an advanced care directive or what's sometimes called a living will. Beginning in January of 2016, Medicare made it possible for the first time for certain clinicians to bill for their work with patients to develop advanced care plans. Despite the new billing option, uptake has been quite slow. Now, in healthcare, we often use financial incentives to motivate behavior change, and you might have expected that simply creating a payment option for advanced care planning would make it happen. The reasons Medicare's payment policy has not led to greater pursuit of advanced care planning is the topic of today's health policy. I'm speaking with Karen Ledeen, an associate professor of occupational therapy and community health at Tufts University. Dr. Ledeen and co-authors published a paper in the January 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the limited use of advanced care planning billing codes among clinicians. Their qualitative study revealed a number of potential explanations for low use that can help us understand why a seemingly simple payment change doesn't automatically yield the desired results. Barriers include institutional practices, concerns about the effects on patients, and more, all of which we'll discuss in this episode. Dr. Ladine, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you with me as a guest today. Now, your paper is focused on advanced care planning, a term that may not be familiar to everyone. Can, can you say what it is and why it's important for us to encourage it to occur? Sure. Um, so I think there's a lot of different definitions for advanced care planning, but what we use broadly is um, thinking about advanced care planning as distinct from in-the-moment decision-making by trying to encourage families and patients to have discussions in advance. So many people might think of advanced care planning as a process that supports people in understanding and sharing their preferences, their values, and goals for future medical care um, at a situation or time when they can't easily express it. And that might include documentation um, of their preferences and goals, things that they would want or would not want. It might include selecting a proxy or a person to make their medical decisions for them in case they're unable to express or make decisions um, for their care. So these sound like really important things for us to do, but people just kind of don't do it on their own. They, they need a little help? Yes. Um, so I think many of us don't like to think about, um, you know, future states at which we may or may not uh, be able to express our preferences and things that could go wrong um, in our health or health care. Um, so ACP or advanced care planning is important. Um, and for some time, health services researchers and the public more broadly have noted an increase in people dying in hospitals and receiving intensive care at the end of life um, in the last weeks and months of life that are inconsistent with most people's desire um, to die at home. And so the focus on patient-centered care, on living and dying in the way that fits our preferences has really become front and center in healthcare alongside a push towards value-based care. And all of this has increased our efforts to understand how to improve end-of-life care and how to promote patient autonomy and patient-centered care. And advanced care is really one of those tools. It's a first step 
um, for improving end-of-life care, um, primarily through the alignment of, of preferences and goals with treatment, but also lowering the burden on caregivers and family who may not know what a patient wants um, and may feel conflicted um, and burdened with these types of decisions. So let's uh, bring Medicare into this conversation. Uh, presumably, if we want to promote these kinds of good practices, uh, we're talking about a population disproportionately do- doing this kind of planning a little later in life. Why did Medicare jump in and create billing codes? Why was that important? Uh, when did it happen? Just tell us a little about the policy context. So the policy context um, for advanced care planning is such that um, advanced care planning was initially included in early versions of Obamacare um, and subsequently taken out following some of the death panel debates that um, the listeners may remember of 2009. Um, And those involved Sarah Palin, who is the former governor of uh, Alaska and vice presidential candidate in 2008. And she coined the term death panels, um, asserting that Um, these conversations about what people would want or or not want um, for the end of their life would lead to rationing of care according to deservingness. Um, It was highly provocative, and the death panel debate was polarizing. Um, And as such, the advanced care planning reimbursement was taken out um, of the final version of the ACA. Um, But then CMS introduced advanced care planning reimbursement codes separately about five years later in January 2016 without fanfare and without much attention. Um, And this was in part a reaction um, to uh, providers, uh, the provider community clinicians, the um, American College of of Physicians and the American, um, uh, the AAFP, um, as well as some patient advocates, including um, the AARP who determined that it was pretty important for patients to be able to talk to their clinicians. And let's just pause. AAFP is the family physicians. Right. And AARP is now AARP. It used to actually be an acronym, but of course they are uh, a consumer organization. Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, CMS being responsive um, to the growing call for um, really uh, reimbursing clinicians for this vital uh, component of care um, introduced these codes in the hope that they would make advanced care planning um, more widely accessible. So one of the things I really like about your paper is that it's this large qualitative study. We can look at the data showing the uptake of these billing codes, but then you've got to get behind the data and figure out why it's not doing exactly what you thought it would do. So what were people expecting and how did that motivate uh, your study? Um, so qualitative research is really ideally suited for answering these questions of how and, and why things happen um, and making sense of it. And I think when we first started out, we thought um, in our um, advisory panel thought that there would be centers that are well known for advanced care planning and palliative care initiatives where there would be high utilization of these codes and um, in practices such as palliative care. Um, and potentially oncology, um, and uh, from primary care doctors as well. And then there would be maybe practices or or health systems that utilize the codes less. Um, And we wanted to really understand kind of the heterogeneity and reasons that people do or do not utilize these billing codes. Um, And what we found was that the landscape was much more nuanced um, than we had thought, um, and that even among um, and within health systems that are known for um, palliative care and are known for advanced care planning and 
prioritizing that either in the mission or by having um, a leader who's very committed to this, there, there was not uniformity in use of the codes. And so within the same clinic or practice, there might be clinicians who utilize um, advanced care plan codes significantly, um, and then many who don't use it at all. And since we're going to dive in a lot about codes, let's just take a moment. Uh, these are the CPT or current procedural terminology codes that enable a clinician to bill Medicare. Um, and what is it that you can bill for? Right. Um, so these are um, these are codes that enable clinicians to bill Medicare um, for time spent um, on advanced care planning conversations with patients, um, and it can be done in a number of different ways. Um, one way that's commonly used is through the um, annual wellness visit, um, and another way is a standalone visit dedicated to advanced care plans. And um, the codes are very flexible. They really require a minimum of a about 16 minutes on a, the conversation of advanced care planning. They don't require anyone to complete an advanced care plan, and they can be done um, in a number of different settings, including primary care and hospital settings and rehabilitative settings, really um, very flexible in that way. The last preview before we get into the results is who you spoke to. You already mentioned that there was a lot of heterogeneity, even within systems that are well known for doing a fairly good job on this. So how did you pick the sites? Who did you talk to at those sites? So we um, we picked the sites through a um, systematic process of identifying sites, health systems that are nationally known for advanced care planning um, and for palliative care, as well as geographically matched sites. So sites in the same region um, or same city, really, most of the time that are not that are comparator sites that were not particularly well known for an emphasis on um, advanced care planning or palliative care. Um, And we tried to balance and purposively sample, uh, which just means kind of systematically identify a spectrum um, of sites across a number of criteria that were important based on our um, advisory uh, panel, as well as on our literature search. And that included things like um, different parts of the country, um, different um, uh, practice emphasis, different bed size, and things like that. Um, And we wound up with a sample of 11 health systems that differed in these ways, these important ways, um, and with a final sample of 272 um, interviews that we completed with 163 physicians and 109 non-physician clinicians and administrators. Um, And overall, we had a a very high yield in terms of our participation. So 88% of sites that we reached out to participated in our study. This is a very impressive, large qualitative uh, sample. And I'm very eager to turn our attention to the themes that you drew from those conversations. Uh, We'll do that after we take a short break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash hpl. 
Are you a healthcare professional working in the Medicare Advantage space? Rise National is the event for you. Rise National will bring over 1,600 attendees safely together in Nashville this March for face-to-face networking, benchmarking, regulatory updates, digital healthcare delivery trends, and technology advancements. Visit www.risenational.com and use code JOIN100 to save $100 on registration today. Racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. And yet racism, especially structural racism, remains understudied in healthcare research. The February issue of Health Affairs focuses on racism and health and will cover topics such as how racism damages health, measuring the health impacts of structural racism, and racial bias in digital health. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Ledine about a paper that uh, uses qualitative methods to understand why uptake of Medicare's new billing codes for advanced care planning hasn't been quite as uh, high as one might have imagined. Before the break, we set the stage about the study, but now it's time to get into the findings. So you had these uh, large number of conversations and you pulled out some themes. Why don't we start with the broad themes and then we'll dig a little deeper into some of them. Sure. Um, So like you, we were puzzled why people were not being, uh, we're not billing for a service that they could newly bill for. Five themes really explained um, some of the some of the reasons. So one was around code code based constraints for billing, um, and these were constraints that are inherent to kind of how the code is written and how you can use it. The second is concerns around burdening patients with unexpected charges. The third theme was really around ethical concerns with billing for the discussion of advanced care planning in particular. The fourth was more around incentives to signal the importance of advanced care planning billing and um, lack of incentives um, for some clinicians in using these codes. Um, And finally, we had a theme that identified how some of these um, clinicians and some of these systems overcame barriers um, in order to encourage more widespread adoption of of the codes. So I think if someone wants to really understand all five themes, they're going to have to read the paper. But we're (laughs) going to have a conversation about a few of them that uh, stood out for me. The first may sound a little technical, but as you noted earlier, when you create a billing code, there are people who can bill for certain things, and um, those constraints can actually have a big effect on how much you see uh, use of the code. So talk to me a little bit about those uh, limitations in who can bill, what they can bill for, that, and how that emerged as a theme. One of the most surprising findings to us was that primary care clinicians did not bill uh, much, um, as much as we thought they would, um, and that many people who were engaging in advanced care planning discussions also did not bill for other reasons. Um, so these constraints for primary care in particular included um, the onerous time requirement, the 16 minutes. Um, and and as you know, many of us experience when we go to our primary care and finally get an appointment, we you know have a lot of things that we want to discuss. Um, and primary care providers felt that they could not have um, the, this long conversation they mainly had repeated shorter conversations over the course of weeks and months. Um, the second was really around who is having advanced care planning conversations. And um, advanced care 
the, the advanced care planning code does not differ from any other E&M codes in that it follows the fee schedule in all ways, but the workforce that is tasked and trained in advanced care planning are, are not necessarily included in the fee schedule. One of the barriers in particular that we found is that people who were already engaging in advanced care planning conversations may be billing for um, a more complex visit or for time um, and not using the specific code because of some of the constraints around um, the specific time spent um, that was required by CMS. The second piece is that um, as a, you know, many clinicians who are profoundly important in providing um, advanced care planning on the front lines are registered nurses and chaplains and social workers. Um, and these team members are not able to bill um, with using ENM codes. Um, and this was a large point of contention um, among the interviewees, both the non-clinician practitioners, but also among clinicians who felt that these valued team members were not um, being able to to bill for services that they were so adeptly providing. So let's go to the second topic. I found this one really striking, uh, that concern about patients. You have it sort of as a financial issue and as an ethical issue, but the notion that the billing codes could affect patients is something that, honestly, I hadn't really in, imagined as I started reading this paper that that would emerge as a theme. Can you say a little more about this one? Yeah, we were surprised about this one as well, um, in particular because you know many Americans engage in advanced care planning um, through uh, encounters with lawyers or clergy or others whom they may pay um, to, to, you know, to talk to about these important decisions and make plans. Um, but cl- both clinicians and then um, in a separate st- part of our study, we actually talked to patients um, in focus groups. Um, people were expressed, you know, great concern that um, advanced care billing, um, so that means that, you know, the 20% coinsurance um, would impose um, additional costs for Medicare uh, patients without supplemental insurance, and that patients would be surprised or angered, um, and the potential inequities in the ability to pay for advanced care planning would actually be um, exacerbated. Um, And so, you know, we had a lot of clinicians really disturbed that um, patients were surprised by um, a copayment charge for a a conversation um, and others that just felt that their their patients didn't have an extra $40 or so to to pay for such a visit. The ethical implications there and the ethical concerns that the clinicians expressed were also really interesting. Um, Many clinicians felt that talking to patients about their plans, about their goals of care, is really part and parcel of what they do. Um, and they just felt that it was unethical to charge them separately for that. It's interesting. You know, I think that we're willing to accept a lot of charges in um, healthcare, uh, but but this was an area where people had a lot of concerns. It was, it was an important um, barrier to using the codes. Um, a third theme is uh, very uh, complex. It will, we won't do it justice, but uh, these are clinicians and others practicing in institutions that uh, are often large and complex. And uh, 
the use of the codes was tied to various levels of support and policy and workflow that are at the institutional level. Can you just give us a little insight about that? Yeah. Um, so at some at some systems um, and some sites that we went to, the the process for billing for advanced care planning or even finding an advanced care plan in the electronic health record was extremely difficult. Um, whereas uh, other sites really prioritized this, so it was very easy to search. Um, they improved interoperability between hospitals, for example, and primary care offices, and they had electronic prompts that would, you know, help the provider very quickly um, enter notes from an advanced care planning um, discussion. They had cheat sheets for them about how to bill and what was necessary, um, and they had um, site champions. They had, you know, a clinician who was very eager to share their um, enthusiasm and their knowledge, um, and that really helped their peers with adopting this, this new code. You know, as I looked at the demographics of the people you spoke with in the study, I couldn't help but notice that the share of people who identified as Black or Hispanic among the clinical staff interviewed was very low, certainly compared to the population served. And I wondered if we're trying to increase advanced care planning, uh, there's a role here for just increasing the concordance between patient and clinician, race and ethnicity, if that came up at all. Yes, yes, full stop. You know, I think representation matters. Um, it was something we tried for and we just could not achieve well in this study, very sadly. Um, there are some studies um, showing that racial concordance is important. And I think, um, you know, given um, especially kind of recent evidence um, associated with, you know, discussions of COVID vaccines and other other areas where there is mistrust and there is difficulty um, in having conversations. Representation is really important and something that we should strongly promote. Um, we did look at, we, we published a paper looking at, um, focused on disparities in um, a subset of the interviewees and really found that clinicians had a hard time discussing advanced care planning with people of color with people of certain religious beliefs, um, and that there were a lot of preconceived notions around, you know, what patients would want or not want in terms of these discussions, in part keeping um, many patients from having these discussions, from being offered advanced care plans. We did find um, both among um, clinicians who identified as Black, but also um, other clinicians that there were successful ways of overcoming that. Um, and that included rejecting stereotypes and assessing individual preference for each patient um, and um, developing strategies for advanced care planning that involved a more multidisciplinary approach, um, as well as not so much focusing on narrow advanced care planning outcomes. We found that focusing on you know, documentation, yes, no, was really off-putting um, for, for many patients. So I agree with you. It's an area of, um, of really important growth. Well, you know, we're a policy journal, and here's a policy that's been in place uh, for long enough to do your study and to gather some data. If you were advising Medicare today on how to build a billing uh, policy for advanced care planning, are there suggestions for what you might do differently than what they decided when they implemented this back in 2016? So I, I will say that we asked um, our participants who were so generous in sharing their perspectives and opinions with us, and I can just reflect some of that back to you. Um, so one of their suggestions was to eliminate the beneficiary cost sharing, um, and that is a feasibility challenge. It would likely require legislation, um, but there is precedent for doing this, for eliminating cost sharing for 
example, for preventative services um, in the ACA. Um, and that was a, a big and kind of recurrent idea. The second was improving reimbursement. Um, that uh, clinicians felt the reimbursement was low, especially for specialists, um, to have these complicated conversations that take a lot of time. And the third was um, improving um, reimbursement for shorter durations and recurrent conversations, um, as well as for reimbursing providers who engage in this who are non-advanced practice providers. Oh, those are all very interesting ideas. Um, and it's uh... Uh, again, a reminder that you know you you launch a policy with the best of intentions, and then until it's in place, it's hard to know what parts of it will will succeed and 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 what won't. Well, let me just close with a somewhat different question. You are a professor in a department of occupational therapy, and I think it's fair to say that when I look at the authors of papers in health affairs and the people I've spoken to on this podcast. Uh, this is not a common organizational home, academic home for a health services researcher. Can you just tell me a little bit about how being in that department in that context affects how you approach your health services research? Sure. Um, so you're right. It's not the typical home for um, health services faculty, although there are um, a, a small number of us. Um, I think for me in particular, um, for someone who who thinks a lot about policies um, and um, uh, healthcare for older adults and for people who are facing health challenges, occupational therapy really emphasizes meaningful occupation and person-centered care and justice as key tenets of the profession. Um, and I think here aligning treatment or care with patient preferences and goals is really a key interest of mine and something that occupational therapists work a lot about, really thinking about um, how do you support patient autonomy and meaningful engagement in all of the spectrums and, and what that means for people? Um, I think in advanced care planning, we're really doing that same work and thinking about, you know, what is it that people want? How do they want to live out this last stage of life? And what does that mean for the care that they receive? Um, so the questions, you know, that I ask are really at the intersection of care and ethics and, and policy. Um, and so that positions me kind of well. Um, and I think OT or occupational therapy um, keeps me keenly aware of the, the spectrum of needs in our society um, and what that looks like and where we're doing well and where we still need to, to do some better work. Well, Dr. Ledeen, uh, thank you for the study and uh, the important and interesting conversation on a topic that really does warrant more attention than it gets. Uh, thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Oh, thanks so much. It was truly a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>